So, Jay, we know Jack the Ripper exists in the Marvel Universe, right? Have they ever done any stories about him? Aw, oh, Miles. You say that like any comics publisher has ever been able to resist. Mm, point. So, what's his deal in the 616? Is he Mr. Sinister? I bet he's Mr. Sinister. See, I would have put my money on Sabretooth working for Mr. Sinister, but we would both lose that particular bet. How so? He's actually a malevolent parasite from the Dread Dormammu's Dark Dimension who possesses people. Interesting. So, no ties to the X-Men at all? I wouldn't necessarily say that. See, the human who was his host during the Whitechapel murders actually showed back up later. Is he a mutant? Not that I know of. They just ran into him in the afterlife one time. In hell? On the crew of Nightcrawler's dad's pirate ship. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 315 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. You ever have one of those moments when you listen to the episode number and you just blink a couple times and try to figure out how we could have done that many? Yeah, that's too many. That's, that's a lot. We can just cut out, like, the first half of every episode, merge it with the first, the second half of the next episode, uh, just condense it and make it more confusing. What if we just, just sort of smash them together into one long episode? Oh man, just marathon Jay and Miles explain the X-Men? I, I think people would die. If you thought it was weird to hear my voice changing across multiple episodes, wait till they're all the same one! And I thought it was impressive to do a Lord of the Rings Extended Edition marathon. Yeah, we didn't even have Dom Dominic Monaghan faking a German accent in the middle of ours. Best special feature on a DVD ever. Look it up, listeners. So much. I'm going to link to it in the visual companion because it's beautiful and perfect and you should all see it. It's also entirely unrelated to the comics we're going to be talking about in today's episode. Is it, though? I mean, I don't know. After trying to figure out the theme of that Storm miniseries we did, I don't know what to believe about any comics anymore. I mean, I like it better than the comics we're covering today, but I like it better than most things. That's fair. So today we're going to be talking about yet another mid-90s miniseries, because Marvel could not get enough of miniseries in the mid-90s. Now normally, I am all for all the miniseries. I'm on the record here. I love miniseries. I don't love this miniseries. I don't love it at all. Not even one little bit. I have very mixed feelings about this miniseries. There are parts I love, there are parts I don't, and there are parts that I didn't think I didn't love until you told me why they weren't cool and then I can't really see it otherwise anymore. Aw, I'm sorry I ruined this terrible miniseries for you. Nah, you know, some things must be destroyed. Uh, this miniseries, though, is called Wolverine and Gambit Victims. And you would be correct if you thought that in the mid-90s, doing a miniseries starring Wolverine and Gambit probably seemed extremely, extremely marketable. I have no idea how well this miniseries sold, but I suspect a lot. Yeah, I expect so. It is... it's... it's kind of got that created-by-committee feel. I don't think it was, but the actual story hook is one of those things that has been trod over so many times and in so many different directions that I feel like it starts out hackneyed. Or at least the way it seems to start. But we'll get to that. Before we dive into this miniseries, 
Let's talk a little bit about where everybody's favorite mid-90s badasses, and actually in one case late 80s and in the other case all the way back to the mid-70s badasses. Anyway, let's talk about what Wolverine and Gambit have been up to. I mean, just 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 being marketable all over the place. Uh, pretty much. So... When I was in seventh grade, all of the boys in my class wanted to be Wolverine or Gambit. I personally wanted to be Archangel, but I think that was just because fewer people knew who he was and I was an elitist. But That's very, very angsty of you. I'm just saying, I was not always the happy-go-lucky, uh, increasingly graying adult you see before you today. I, I have so much trouble thinking of Archangel as aspirational. He, he flies. He's very high up. You have to look up to him. Literally. Fair point. Anyway, in continuity at this point, Wolverine had had the adamantium torn off his skeleton by Magneto. And since that happened, he's been becoming more and more animalistic. Starting by getting his own slightly ragged font. That's true. He's also been living in the woods outside the X-Mansion due to not wanting to be under the same roof as his imprisoned nemesis Sabretooth. He's been subsisting at least partially on greasy fast food. I mean, no judgment, that's what I had for lunch. And he doesn't seem to have bathed in weeks, if not months. I mean, I had frozen tater tots for lunch. I'm not sure if that's more or less virtuous. I did cook them. I would say more virtuous. More relevantly, though, Wolverine has been significantly more impulsive and violent. So, Gambit, meanwhile, shared a kiss with his on-again, off-again partner, Rogue, at what appeared to be the end of the world. But when the world failed to stay ended thanks to a giant crossover, Gambit fell into a coma due to Rogue's contact-based absorption powers. He's since woken up, only to discover that Rogue also absorbed at least one dark secret with that kiss, and she's now left the X-Men to go on a long, irresponsible road trip and process that knowledge. Gambit, for his part, is spending a great deal of time moping and worrying. But, you know, Cajun style. I was gonna say, he'd fit right in. This is, this is, this is life in 2020. Oh yeah, it's true. It's ahead of his time. Both X-Men are no strangers to loss, having watched many loved ones, largely women, die in their increasingly tragic pasts. None of those women was, were technically found in refrigerators, but you can pretty much take the trope as read. And that brings us, in part unfortunately, to Wolverine and Gambit, Victims, number one, titled In Harm's Way. Written by Jeff Loeb, with art by Tim Sale, colors by Gregory Wright, and letters by Comicraft. And actually, we have the same credits for every issue. Wow! This is definitely a plus to miniseries. It is. I mean, the ones that actually do it that way. So, Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale have collaborated on a ton of stuff. I think the only story they've done together that we've covered so far in the show was the backup story in Uncanny X-Men Annual number 18, where Bishop kept going through various danger room scenarios where he was able to save his buds Malcolm and Randall, and then he agreed to go rollerblading with Jubilee. Oh dang, I liked that story. It was a good story, yeah. I would say the book that Loeb and Sale are probably most famous for is actually not done by Marvel at all, and that's Batman the Long Halloween. That is a book I'm primarily f familiar with because it figured heavily into a paper I wrote years ago about queering and feminization of Batman villains. Because boy is it full of that. It is. For Marvel, they're probably best known for doing the, I guess, color series. So Spider-Man Blue, Daredevil Yellow, Hulk Gray, Captain America White. The last of which has extra unfortunate implications given recent revelations about Loeb and, you know, rampant racism. There is that. 
But yeah, they have teamed up many, many times, and the books they do are often sort of prestigious, and I suppose you could count this among uh, their ranks. They do have a very good writer-artist chemistry. Their books tend to be very stylish. They tend to have a very particular, deliberate feel to them. And overall, I think their work tends to be pretty fun, if sometimes problematic. I think you're absolutely right about the chemistry. That's one thing I'll absolutely give this series. And really everything that the two of them have done together really reads like a creative team working in very, very, very good sync. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I don't know if we're at Claremont Sienkiewicz levels, but honestly, I think we're only at Claremont Sienkiewicz levels with Claremont and Sienkiewicz. Or Claremont Miller. But this is, yeah, they are they are a longtime creative team, and they're one that works together very well. And that's the case here, too. I want to talk a little bit about some larger context for this because there's an aspect of it that really defines the series for me mm-hmm. and that I think is worth touching on, which is that this is basically a Jack the Ripper story, as as the cold open may or may not have implied. And um, I really hate Jack the Ripper stories. I, in general, have pretty strong feelings about the sensationalist fictionalizing of actual murders of actual people, especially in ways that reinforce a lot of cultural stereotypes and discourse that makes it easier to and supports the general writing off of the deaths of sex workers, which tends to be how the Jack the Ripper killings are used in fiction, or at least something that the fiction that they're used in reinforces. And honestly, if I never have to read another comic or novel or watch a movie about how Jack the Ripper is really a time traveler slash fictional character slash historical figure slash, you know, giant bug-eyed alien, it will be too fucking soon. In Babylon 5, he interrogated Ambassador Delenn before she was able to get a new job. That's a little weird. It was really weird. It was a surprisingly good episode, given how weird it was, though. Definitely not one of those things you really prepare for in the job interview questions. It's true. God, I mean, I was nervous enough at my interview at my current job. If Jack the Ripper had been there, yikes. Anyway, um, so in combination to that, with that, I also wrote a paper in college on the way that the Jack the Ripper killings impacted and changed and kind of redefined journalism in the UK, and I retained just enough from it that I also get annoyed at inaccuracies, so basically this is kind of a double whammy for me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one inaccuracy, sort of, that the story opens with is from a famous, if apocryphal, letter that Jack the Ripper supposedly wrote to the press during his killing spree. So, the version in the comic reads, I'm not a butcher, I'm not a kid, nor yet a foreign skipper, but I'm your own true loving friend, yours truly, Jack the Ripper. So, the original letter, which, as you pointed out to me when we were talking about this earlier, Jay, is apocryphal and probably not actually from Jack the Ripper at all, said, I'm not a Yid, that being, you know, the racial slur for Jewish people. So there was actually context for that, which is that there was a lot of conversation about, you know, and speculation in the press and popularly about who, what, etc. Jack the Ripper was, including a whole, whole lot of stuff related to creepy social Darwinism. There was... A huge amount of speculation that specifically that Jack the Ripper was a Jew. This related to actually one of the later actual Jack the Ripper notes or a bit of graffiti and stuff. But it's something that he addressed directly in at least one of the letters. And so plays into to the rhyme that, that tends to be inaccurately attributed to him as well. That said, I can definitely understand why a superhero comic probably didn't want to uh, use an ethnic slur on its first page. So fair enough for changing it. 
But as this narration uh, is on page, we also see this woman walking down a dark alley, and then a two-page spread on the title page of this woman terrified, backed up against a brick wall with Wolverine's shadow looming over her. And I love Tim Sale's art in this series. I mean, kind of in general, but it's great in this series. One of the reasons I love it, I think, is that he does his own inks often, and that's the case here. And he uses just so much black. But it's not like Mike Mignola where you have these big blocks of black. Sales blacks are more... uh, They're more jagged. They're more blended. They're more crosshatched. But they're still just stark and in some cases oppressive and very, very striking. They look very fluid to me. And that's actually... That's something that I will absolutely give Sale points for on this. Because one of of the very common um, pits that, that... Jack the Ripper fictionalizations and stuff, riffing on it falls into is really prurient, sexy, dead, and frightened women art, which I have extremely strong feelings about and have ranted at length about in previous episodes, so I'm not going to do that here, but basically fuck that shit. Sale doesn't jump into that. Like, even in the panel that, that Miles is describing, like, that's not the focus or the center. You see someone who's scared and who's reacting, but... The shadow of Wolverine and the context give it much, much more narrative heft, and we're not seeing, again, fear or peril for objectification or titillation. Yeah, so good on you, this miniseries, for that in particular. We find out that this woman is the fifth victim, and the narration mentions that Jack the Ripper had at least six, which is debated. So this is this is not the fifth victim of Jack the Ripper himself, though. This is the fifth victim of a modern apparent copycat killer who, based on that silhouette, very much appears to be Wolverine. Spoiler, it's not. Nope. But let's cut over to the other 90s badass in the title. Let's cut to Gambit, with a delightful opening single-panel page of him grinning at the jewels in the, the safe that he just cracked. And I love Sales Gambit. This is actually one of my favorite depictions of Gambit. He looks gaunt and angular and perpetually exceptionally haggard. Like... The word rakish gets thrown around talking about Gambit, and, like, he is visually rakish here, and it's great. He's got a really intense Egon Shield vibe, but cartoonier. Oh, it's it's wonderful. Like, I wish Gambit would look like this all the time. Actually, I don't know. There are a lot of artists whose Gambits I like. Point being— He's also a little bit Remy Constantine here. Yeah, yeah, there's definite there's a definite Constantine feel to Remy, and honestly, his role in the story is kind of that, too. This is a Gambit who's a bit different from the Gambit we've seen in the X-Men, but it's a version that I really like— Anyway, as he's looking into the safe he just cracked, Rogue comes in through a window, tries to stop him, and in their fight, he takes her out, smashing her to the ground after they both fly out a window. Turns out it's just a Danger Room hologram. I mean, remember, Rogue is still away from the X-Men doing her ill-advised road trip with Iceman. And Gambit apparently has some extremely specific scenarios programmed in. Honestly, I think this is probably the only of Gambit's personally programmed scenarios that you could get through the comics code. Yeah, I like the idea that Gambit's guilt is somehow messing with all of his porn programs. Oh god, that would be just like Gambit, wouldn't it? I mean, that doesn't stop him from watching porn constantly, but he just feels guilty about it. No, but like somehow in Cerebro it it responds to his impulses or the stuff that he's doing, or he he doesn't give it quite the right cues, and so it all just turns into fights. (laughs) I would say poor Gambit, but honestly, Gambit has made most of the beds that he's he's forced to sleep in. Oh yeah. 
There is this great page with these four shrinking vertical panels as Gambit lights a cigarette and walks away and then out the door, and in the foreground you see that hologram of Rogue fade away more and more. One of the things I love about Sale is his sense of visual pacing and his ability to guide the reader's eye across the page in ways that work not just in terms of following the story, but work kind of symbolically. This idea that Gambit and his connection to Rogue are just sort of receding as Gambit tries to run away from it by going into what the rest of the story will be. It's it's fucking brilliant. Like, I know you have a lot of issues with the story, Jay, in this miniseries, and I, I get it. You are not wrong. But, man, the art just blew me away. So, this is just the start of a very bad day for Gambit, because, as we find out, the fifth victim whom we saw is a woman named Alexandra Davies. She's an undercover detective, and she was actually a friend of Gambit. So he decides that he's going to fly to London and do some investigating. I really enjoy his horrible flight, though. He has to deal with it being non-smoking and telling himself that it's fine, and then making a house of cards, which then collapses, and then he falls asleep not realizing that he has, he has a bunch of, like, murder newspaper articles spread out on his uh, seat-back table, and he freaks out a nearby child. I thought those were just crime scene photos. Oh, uh, maybe. Uh, either way, the child's freaked out, and Gambit apologizes. It's very awkward. So I gotta say, as a comics editor, that is one of my perpetual public transit fears. I mean, not the crime scene photos exactly, obviously, but, like, having something clearly wildly inappropriate out because I'm working on a flight. Do you remember that time that your Google search history was full of searches on Nazi occult stuff and lacrosse? I do, for entirely legitimate reasons, but yeah, I was briefly convinced that the FBI was going to come for me. Just to ask what the hell you were doing... I was working on Hellboy and a custom comic for a local lacrosse club. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think at that point you come up with a more interesting answer. That's a pretty interesting answer, though. I mean, that's it. That's that's the true answer. It, there, there was a lot going on around those. But yeah, it was it was a whole thing. And I was I was really worried about <laughs> my search history triggering something. <laughs> FBI, are you even paying attention? Come on, do your jobs. Arrest Jay. Are you there, FBI? It's me, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of law enforcement, uh, Gambit breaks into uh, some sort of law enforcement facility and learns a little bit more from the police records about victim number five, about Alexandra. Apparently, her death wounds were inflicted by these curved, sharp blades, and bone fragments were found in the wounds. Wah, wah. So, um, yes, there is a certain implication here. Gambit keeps playing Shady Investigator. It's, it's a weird role for him, like, being all subterfuge like, that's normally not his style. But it's fun. It kind of implies a side of him that we haven't seen, and a side that sort of fits what we're going to learn about his relationship to the victim. Gambit feels like a very odd fit for this series to me. I've, I've mentioned that there are comics that feel like they have the protagonists plugged into roles. That kind of feels like the case with Gambit here. Like, there are a number of characters I could see stepping into this particular position, or I could actually see this being a Wolverine solo series. The thing is, for me, Gambit's the most interesting part of this series. I agree that it could have been another character, but given that it is Gambit, I think the way the narration about him, his dialogue, his relationship with Alexandra plays in, like, it's very, very Remy. I couldn't see any other X-Men character in that role. I guess, but again, as you said, this really isn't the Gambit we're used to, and in fact, this is a pretty big break from the characterization we've seen so far. 
I really like it, though. Like, I almost think of this story as kind of a, an Elseworlds story. Like, it's just a slightly alternate reality from the main Marvel Universe. For me, as a standalone miniseries, those aspects of it, I really dig. Other aspects, less so. But anyway, Gambit gets caught in a police sting. There's a lady cop pretending to be attacked by this mysterious killer. Not sure if it's lady cop from lady cop number one. Uh, and Gambit is taken down by the other cop working with her. And there's this wonderful page after Gambit gets knocked down of Gambit squatting down in the lower half of this otherwise fully black page, holding these charged cards that are the only illumination that's the reason we could see his face or his armor. Like, he looks really badass. Yeah, Salem has a lot of fun with light sourcing in general, and on one hand, that results in a lot of splash pages, which result in sort of kind of slow progression, but on the other hand, he uses them really, really well. Yeah, I mean, story-wise, this could have easily fit into an annual if it was just the actual plot, but storytelling-wise, I think it uses the four issues pretty well. I agree, absolutely. Thankfully, there is an attack nearby, an actual attack, and when Gambit runs up to help this real victim, he finds the attacker is... Wolverine? Bad times. Now, Gambit doesn't quite know what to think. He knows that Wolverine's been kind of on the edge, that he's he's been losing his grip lately, but this is a step further. And Wolverine is also pretty bewildered. When Gambit asks him what's going on, he's got nothing. I can't. I don't know about the blood, or how I even came to London in the first place. And if you're looking to me to say I had nothing to do with killing those women, I can't. Logan and and Remy obviously, you know, take on all of the cops together, but they're not the only ones interested in what's happening here. There is, is a lone figure watching and laughing as they do. Wait a minute, the close-up we get of this mysterious villain, we see one blue eye and one green eye? Ah, oh, shit, it's David Bowie! Man, I wish it were David Bowie. I wish it were Freddie Mercury, and this, this just turned into the thing where Wolverine finds Freddie Mercury in the woods. Speaking of things you should link to in the visual companion, Jay. We definitely have before, but I definitely will again. That takes us to Wolverine and Gambit victims number two, In Deep. Want to pause from the plot and talk about the cover of this issue, because it's just really silly. Got these perfect cameos um, for, for Wolverine and Gambit's faces through a pane of broken glass, but it basically looks like they both just headbutted the cover at the same time. Oh, that makes perfect sense. I mean, we know X-Factor smashes through walls to get into anywhere, and Wolverine and Gambit are the most extreme characters, so they just headbutt through walls. Yeah, but they didn't get all the way through. They just created two little, like, face frames. I'm not saying they're good at it. So, they fight the cops, but they're rescued by an Interpol agent named Martinique Jason. And there is one part of, 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 of this scenario that is accurate, and that is that her name is in fact Martinique, but absolutely nothing else that she tells them is true, because this is in fact Mastermind 2. This is Martinique Wingard, the daughter of Jason Wingard, the late original Mastermind. Remember, the first Mastermind died of the Legacy Virus back in Uncanny Annual number 17. Martinique looks kind of like a less green version of Viper in terms of the way her hair is going over one of her eyes, in terms of her shield but evil and sexy outfit that she's wearing. I actually thought that's who she was at first. No, yeah, that's, I mean, that's that's one of the issues that I have with, with this team is that there's kind of, at least in this series, a woman who gets drawn with sometimes different hairstyles. 
pretty much. Speaking of additional women, let's talk about Mastermind, Mastermind, and Lady Mastermind. Right, so eventually, not in this series, we're going to meet Martinique's sister, Reagan. Reagan has similar powers to Martinique's and to Jason's, and she goes by Lady Mastermind, which I mind way less as a disambiguator when both characters are women, but also I feel fairly strongly that they should make more jokes about Mark Martinique having bad manners, being like, yeah, well, she's no lady, stuff like that. <laughs> right. I, what I really love is why there are these two mastermind sisters. So apparently, a little bit after this, Claremont didn't realize that this mastermind, Martinique, was already being used in a story. At the time, Claremont was writing Extreme X-Men, and he was planning to use Martinique, so Instead of just using a different kind of character, or a character with vaguely compatible powers, he was like, you know what? Screw it. I'm just gonna make another half-sister of Martinique named Reagan. I'm gonna call her Lady Mastermind, and done. Sure, why not? They've got a third sister who's who, for, for you know, originality purposes, goes by Pixie. Yeah, that was a retcon later. That's Megan Gwynn, Pixie, a rather popular character from the 2000s. Um, there was an implication way after she debuted that Mastermind was her dad. So so Wolverine and Gambit, with, with Martinique's help, managed to escape, knocking over a lot of cars on the way. Like, they just knock them over. It kind of reminds me of Die Hard 5, which, by the way, is a terrible movie, and I say this as somebody who likes most of the Die Hard movies, where, like, there's this chase scene, and it's really exciting until you stop to think, holy shit, the hero just killed, like, 400 people! It's unfortunate. It's really unfortunate. Die Hard 5 is unfortunate. God damn it, Die Hard 5, why couldn't you have been more like Die Hard 4? Which was not a good movie, but was a fun movie. I've only ever seen Die Hard 1, and I'm okay with that. You should see more of them, just not 5. Take your word for it. Now, this, I, I, I mentioned that this, this Martinique whom they meet is not actually named Martinique Jason. She's also not actually Martinique Wingard. Um, this, this is, in fact, a robot Martinique Win Wingard, which we learn after a sewer dive and then some going off a, a bridge and also some apparent murder. Uh, she, is, she is a robot. She's a murder bot. It is a really cool disorienting scene. Like, they find Gambit and Wolverine wake up um, and find her dead. They don't know why. They wander around the sewers and end up back in the same room, but she's gone. The blood's still there, and then she's alive and she pulls a gun on them. Like, it does feel very nightmarish and very confusing and disorienting. It's very Silent Hill 2. You know, it kind of is. That's a really good point. Silent Hill 2 is better. Silent Hill 2 is better than most things, though. Uh, the game, the second Silent Hill movie is... Uh, not good. I guess it's better than Die Hard 5? Maybe. I don't know. And the first Silent Hill movie is also not very good. It does have fantastic practical effects, though. Good atmosphere. I mean, honestly, the plot's the main thing wrong with the first Silent Hill movie. The rest of it I liked. As a Die Hard Harry Mason apologist, I have some feelings about the casting, too. But That's reasonable. But, um, anyway, comics. Comics. Right. Yes. So, the actual Martinique, the one who's not a murder bot but is Jason Wingard's daughter and his mastermind, but not Lady Mastermind, is alive and well. And she is working with Arcade, who for some reason looks like Two-Face now. And I do really enjoy their villain banter, as Arcade says. Hey, Martinique, you really ought to come out and enjoy the show. Wolverine has gone and killed you again. You know, I'd have to say, your daddy would be so proud of you right now. Quite right, Arcade. That's why I took my father's name. Somebody had to carry on the twisted tradition of Mastermind. 
I love them. I mean, okay, not really, but I, I just love how they're like, oh, we're villains? Well, let's be fucking villains. I enjoy them. You know, they're, they're, not, they're not people I would want to, like, interact with in real life or have exist in real life, but as fictional villains, they're a lot of fun. Which takes us to Wolverine and Gambit, victims number three, No Way Out. Same creative team, yay, we don't have to say it again. This scene is one of my favorites. It's Gambit stealing again, but this time he's stealing a painting out of its frame by cutting it out using the uh, charged tip of a knife he has, which is a nice little use of his powers. That sounds extremely reckless. He's very, very precise. Yes. There are few things that excite me as much. A breathless kiss from a young woman's lips. How she rolls her nylons off so easily. The way perfume hangs in the air long after she has left. These things have their momentary attraction. But the fine art of stealing, fine art, that makes my heart race. It is never about the crime. Anyone can do the crime. The trick, the thrill, is getting away with it. That's a lot of fun. I also really appreciate that Gambit's inner monologue is in a phonetic accent. I'd like to point out that Sam Garthrie writes letters home to his mom in his phonetic accent, so there is precedent. And I judge that, too. I judge it glorious. I really love Gambit's writing in this issue. Like, a lot of things are wrong with it. The way it handles women is just extremely troubling, but Gambit is so, so fun here. It really, really captures just that 90s charisma, that 90s charm, that 90s badassitude. It's, it's so much fun. I don't know. I feel like they clean him up way, way, way too much. Like, he's he's doing the, the detective thing, but also we're going to get in this sequence that he's he's stealing a painting, but he's specifically not stealing it for just theft. He's doing it so he can, he can you know, return it to its rightful owners and shit. And like, no, this is Gambit. He likes to steal. He is he is the horse from over the garden wall. Gambit wants to steal. That's it. That's his thing. I was just thinking about that horse from over the garden wall. You're not wrong. I agree this is a departure from the character. And for me, it's enough fun, and it's in a largely self-contained miniseries, so I'm just gonna go with it. Like, the kind of gentleman scoundrel thief archetype is one I really enjoy, and I think this, uh, this creates that archetype well. Oh, the thing is, I also really enjoy that archetype, and I disagree with you, because I think for it to work, you gotta be a scoundrel, and this gambit is not. Well, he is a little scoundrelly. I mean, when a police officer catches him, that being the aforementioned Alexandra, the person who in the present of the comic is one of the, the victims, he is all sleazy charm. I have been set up. I am only asking for a favor. Throw back this little fish. And tomorrow night, you will catch a much bigger one. In your eyes, you are a gambling woman. Take this chance on me. Gambit, that's a real weird way to talk about your penis. <laughs> but as he's saying this, he slips out of his cuffs and fades away into the fog. And the woman, the additional lady cop, but not that lady cop, uh, is clearly both smitten and troubled by what just happened. And... This is another aspect of Gambit that I enjoy. Like, the roguish, seductive, again, scoundrel. It's it's a fun one. And he's not like a horrible jerk about it the way he is sometimes. Yeah, I buy Gambit charming his way out of the situation, and it's fun and it's cute, and I, it works pretty well. And it's also got some Raising Arizona vibes, which I dig. 
I'm telling you, we, we've discussed this before. Remy should be in that movie. But true to Gambit's word, he does indeed leave a note, well, a folded up card with a note on it, on the desk of Alexandra, revealing who the thief that's really been behind the crime wave is. Because he just stole this one painting. But the real thief is... Who is it, Jay? It's Yukio, which is weird because that's not really her thing. Yukio's definitely a criminal and a thief, but it's a little weird that she's stealing a bunch of art in London. That seems more like a, a Catwoman thing. Well, jewels mostly. At least in, in this context, she's a jewel thief. Oh, okay. But regardless, Yukio is indeed caught by the cops, the, the bobbies, if you will. I'm told they're called that in England, at least sometimes. And this, apparently, is the origin of Yukio's hatred of Gambit that we saw back a little bit before the Phalanx Covenant in Uncanny number 312. Yay, continuity! Funny that they felt like they had to give that an origin. I mean, there are so many reasons to dislike Gambit. You are not wrong. And so we see, as the flashback continues, Gambit and Alexandra playing this very sexy version of Batman and Commissioner Gordon, two people on opposite sides of the law working together. What do you mean sexy version of Batman and Commissioner Gordon? Are you implying that Batman and Commissioner Gordon are not sexy? Oh, I guess they are, but I don't know that they do sex Cajun style. I mean, I would not put it past them. As you know, Batman is an expert in all the things. Oh, including Cajun style sex, you're right. Presumably. Hmm, definitely. As the flashback continues, it goes from full color to black and white, as Alexandra suddenly turns into a skeleton in Gambit's arms, and Logan's shadow looms from what used to be the two of their shadows, and now it's fully black and white, except for the shadows are hashed with red, and it's terrifying, and it's awesome. See, that's super Batman. That's such a Batman thing to have happen. All because Batman is good at Cajun-style sex. God damn it, Bruce. An arcade elsewhere, wearing VR goggles that he's using to watch Mastermind's illusions, applauds and cackles. And the narration implies, okay, so we know Mastermind 1 wasn't telepathic, and he had to use that weird little machine that the White Queen somehow gave him to be telepathic to do the stuff he did to Gene in the Dark Phoenix Saga, but this Mastermind is telepathic. I mean, okay, it doesn't go into that much detail, but I will because I love that stupid little detail. I love that telepathy then automatically, with no explanation, translates to can project it all into VR goggles. Dude, it was the 90s. This is just the way it worked back then. So what about Logan? We've seen Gambit's fantasy slash flashback. Logan currently is, or believes he is, in Japan living a life of sexy married romance with Mariko Yoshida. Mariko, of course, was Wolverine's fiancé who then rejected him, actually because of the original Mastermind, now that I think about it, and was then killed when Wolverine put her out of her misery after she'd been poisoned with blowfish poison by Matsuo. It's rough, buddy. Right. Here the art is all in shades of black and blue, but that red that came in at the end of Gambit's fantasy when things went dark, we see that red in Logan's doubting narration, in the narration where he just doesn't believe it can be true. I love the idea that red is sort of the color of unwelcome truth that creeps into these perfect fantasies. That's just a nice little bit of visual continuity. Yeah, I like that a lot, because it's something that's, that's you know, coded and associated with violence, but and, and in this case, it's got that, but yeah, having it be that's grounded in reality and in the flesh works really well symbolically. Oh, all of the visuals. Tim Sale, you have done a wonderful thing. Jeff Loeb, you have also done things. Yep. 
Logan leaves his and Mariko's bed because he smells an intruder, and in fact, it's Gambit, apparently having come from his own dream fantasy, looking for revenge because he's positive at this point that Logan was indeed the one that killed all those women. Or at least the Gambit Logan interacts with is. One of the telling details about this Gambit, the Gambit who shows up in Japan, is that he smells like tobacco. And we, the readers, know that the actual Gambit hasn't smoked since he got to London. And perhaps that's part of why, at the end of the issue on the last page, Logan runs Gambit the fuck through. Arcade is delighted. And who says the theater is dead? And that brings us to the final issue of the miniseries, number four, In Harm's Way. To no one's surprise, Gambit is in fact fine. He and Wolverine come to in a padded room with the dead murder bot. And they start to put two and two together, because who do they know who's a big jerk and has a whole lot of robot replicas of people? I mean, if we're talking one specific person, Dr. Doom, but if we're talking a bunch of people, yeah, that's Arcade. Right on. So, cue a fight with a bunch of robot Logans, and this is also where we learn what ostensibly is going on. So according to Arcade, Wolverine killed Miss Locke and somehow also burned off half of Arcade's face by cutting it with his claws? Miss Locke being Arcade's frequent assistant. Now, obviously this is not one but several different lies, which Martinique eventually realizes after Wolverine and Gambit have busted in. What actually happened is that Arcade killed Miss Locke during one of their many mutual murder games, which is just a thing they do, so you know that was bound to happen at some point, uh, framed Wolverine captured and imprisoned Wolverine, and then tricked Martinique into helping him kill a bunch of women in ostensible revenge to set Wolverine up. And Martinique is extremely, extremely unhappy about this turn of events. Which I get, but also at the same time, that wouldn't have been okay even when you thought Wolverine had done a murder. Like, the things that are unacceptable now were also unacceptable under the previous scenario. Yeah, I mean, something the dialogue implies is that part of why Martinique is so horrified is that she'd been helping somebody who had killed a woman in cold blood, and she implies that the gender aspect of it is actually a big part of it. She says that nobody else would understand because only she is a woman here, which, I don't know, like, this, I mean, I'm in favor of female solidarity, that's cool, but that feels like a weird line for this villain who's done so many horrible things to so many horrible people already to have. So if, I mean, I think if, if the, the crime victims hadn't just been women, I would be more likely to buy this. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I kind of feel for Martinique here. She's, she's been part of the murders though, right? She's been involved in these. From what I understand, I don't think she was. I believe it was just Arcade using his Wolverine bots that had killed all these women and then hidden Miss Locke's body amid the victims, making it look like she was just one of the victims. Right, we know that happened, but we also know that Mastermind was in on that plan from very, very early on. Like, she was fundamentally part of the plan to frame Wolverine. I thought she didn't know about that part, and she thought that Logan had done all the murders? I don't know, it's, it's sort of ambiguous and confusing, like, this should be a big reveal, and it's honestly not presented very coherently. See, that bit seemed fairly clear to me, but I can, I can also go back and recheck that. I'm not sure, man, I... I really just dislike this entire setup. Um, there's... There's a lot that's, that's you know, continuity problems, but also just... The entire thing is gross and weird, and 
I, I, I've already gone into the things that I, I dislike about the entire premise. Well, there is a little bit of extra continuity, yeah. Years later, in Dennis Hallam's Avengers Arena number 7, we get a flashback of what apparently actually happened, which is not what Martinique sees in Arcade's mind here, which I think is fascinating. What actually happened, according to Avengers Arena, is that Arcade freaked out while he was in bed with Miss Locke and just stabbed her out of nowhere. He talks about how she got too close and he couldn't handle that. And for me, that makes this story more interesting, because I think you can absolutely see some pretty intense misogyny within Arcade's character. Like, we've seen hints of that in a lot of Arcade plots in the past, the way he tends to really, really objectify his female victims as he's trying to kill them. Oh yeah, and Arcade is, is a whole bundle of psychosexual weirdness. He totally is, yeah, and like, I think that's actually part of what makes the villain interesting, so I don't object to that concept in terms of presenting arcade the way it's done in this story i don't think it's handled well but the idea that he would be so messed up over having killed his his lover who he couldn't accept was his lover that he would concoct this elaborate elaborate deceptive scheme to cover it up when in reality like he's a supervillain. why would he bother covering anything up like i can sort of see arcade doing something like that mm, maybe but I, I don't know, because he, he's all about not accepting responsibility, but he's also a, all about, you know, gleefully doing killings. Yeah, so I don't know, I think this could make the character a little bit more complex. I wish it had been handled differently, because there are so few women with agency in this story. Like, even Martinique's been manipulated almost the entire time until the very, very end. But it's, I think there's something here. I, man, I... I hate the choice to do this. I, in general, I hate the choice to kill Miss Locke because I think she's, I think she and Arcade are a really interesting team in ways that Arcade isn't alone. And I think she's a fun character and she's a counterbalance to Arcade in ways that work really well and that we haven't seen because of this for decades. Well, that said, Miss, I believe it was Miss Coriander from Avengers Arena is actually a really, really interesting character. A lot of people got mad at Avengers Arena for killing off a bunch of characters and for essentially just reusing the plot of Battle Royale, which is something that it, in fact, acknowledges. But it's it's actually a great series, and its handling of Arcade and Miss Coriander is really, really cool. This series, though, I just... I have... I am so tired of stories hinged on the deaths, the violent deaths of a large number of women as a plot vehicle. Like, it's not even, is it done well or can it be told well? It's been done so many times, so badly, in such culturally shitty ways, that I feel like there just needs to be a decade or so moratorium. I mean, I'm in favor of that, yeah. So, here, um... Martinique is similarly unimpressed, and as a result of that, Arcade gets trapped in his own mind in an elevator full of Miss Locke. Wolverine and Gambit meanwhile agree that their lives are just too dangerous and rugged for love, and I throw up in my mouth a little, because that's the point where my entire sense of the series as feeling like just intensely cis-straight white dudes jerking off and then calling the byproducts very serious art kind of hits its, and I use this word deliberately, climax. Wow. Uh, very concisely and vividly said. I, there are things that are really good about this series, but as a whole, it just, 
By the time it came out, the things it was doing were overplayed and gross. Now, 25 years later, I got no time for them. Legit. Can we at least agree that Tim Sale's inks are fucking great? Oh yeah, Tim Sale's inks are gorgeous. You know who else is gorgeous? Our listeners. And they've got questions. Alright, an anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Between Mikhail Rasputin, Gabriel Summers, and Jamie Braddock, it seems like the discovery of a male third child is bad news in X-Books. Are there any counterexamples of a new sibling not turning out to be a jerk? Well, I mean, the Guthrie kids are pretty okay. Maybe that's because they kept going past three. Maybe if Pa and Ma Guthrie had stopped with their third sibling, uh, whoever the hell that was, then it would have gone bad. Pixie's not male, but she would violate this principle because her older siblings are jerks and she's nice. There's that. I mean, okay, let's see. Other third siblings. Graydon Creed. Wait, no, he, he is terrible. Polaris. Well, okay, she's great, but she's not male. Cassandra Nova. Okay, well, she's also not male and she's super, super evil. Wait, is Cassandra Nova a third sibling? I mean, she's Xavier's twin, and then, you know, there's their stepbrother Cain Marco, the unstoppable juggernaut. That would make Cain the third sibling, because Cassandra and Xavier have been there since the beginning of Xavier's life, and Cain didn't enter Xavier's life until Xavier was older. Ah, but Cassandra was the third revealed, which is what the question is about. I don't know. Let, let's see, there's Thor and Loki's sister Angela. Well, okay, again, not male, and also they all have like a billion siblings of various sorts, so she doesn't probably count. Uh, let's see, Logan's brother's dog Logan and John Howlett Jr. showed up around the same time. I don't know which was third, but they were both pretty messed up. You know, I can't think of any examples of a later revealed third sibling in the X-Universe or my other Marvel areas of knowledge that didn't turn out terrible. I'm sure they exist, but I can't think of any. I mean, not male ones anyway. I look forward to the listeners showing up to prove us wrong. Watch it be like some super, super standard character that we really, really should have thought of. Ah, uh, well, you know what? It's th This week has been a very long year. It surely has. Chris asks via email, Does Boom Boom have to count down for her time bombs to work? It seems that every time I've seen her use her power, she verbally counts down, but is that required in order for the time bombs to detonate? It is not. However, it is useful to have a grasp on the timing when you're setting off explosives, so I assume that she just does that, both for the theater of it and for her own reference so she knows how long she's got to get away. So my headcanon, and in this case canon is spelled C-A-N-N-O-N because explodo, is that even when Boom Boom uses her wrist launchers and stuff and doesn't verbally count down, she's still counting down in her head. Remember, around the time she got those wrist launchers, she had her jaw broken and wired shut, so maybe she would have actually developed the ability to count quietly in her head, using her inside voice. Like, honestly, seeing Boom Boom's biggest power upgrade of the 90s being uh, learning to not just yell things all the time, I can buy that. But that's a fundamental part of her power. I love it when she yells things. Me too. Tabitha Smith, feel free to yell things. We are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts. Today, the mic goes to Mastermind 2. That would be Martinique Wingard. Take it away, Martinique. Okay, Arcade. You suckered me into helping you once by telling me our target was a murderer. But for the amount of cash you're offering, I'll give you one more chance. My dearly departed dad did love manipulation and murder, although he wasn't in my alliteration alliance. So in his honor, 
Let's be super jerks. So, it was Evan who was responsible for sharing all those copyrighted MP3s on LimeWire. Time for some vengeance, mastermind style. Evan's going to wake up in a nightmare hellscape of record industry lawsuits, blood and guilt, and extreme lawyers all around. <laughs> Wait a sec, though. This is 1995. LimeWire won't be created for another five years. Why I oughta... Okay, fool me twice, shame on me. Fine. One more chance, and that's it, you horrible little man. Let's see. Alexandro Sagate has been... Smuggling nudie branches? You mean those weird little colorful sea slugs? That's not particularly evil, but... In Dad's honor, let's do this anyway. Time for an illusory nightmare of salt and or brackish water, external but not internal bilateral symmetry, and sounds that resemble the clink of a steel wire on the side of a jar. Unless... Damn it! Alexandro's been snuggling neuter branches, not smuggling them! That's it, Arcade. I'm fed up. I'm going to take a cue from my dad and make you think you're a Victorian noble before manipulating you into using the awesome power of the Phoenix Force for my benefit. And you... You also lied about having the Phoenix Force. God, I hate you, Arcade. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes of our show come out most Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And if you've got time, please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice. Next week is Hawk Talk, and in two weeks, the somewhat unevenly paved road to Onslaught continues. In the pages of X-Men.